Welcome to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Ben Glass Law and Virginia Appellate Attorney Steve Emmert. Listening to oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia is one of the best ways to stay abreast of both substantive and procedural law. And today's smart lawyers know that any case, even if it is outside their practice area, can offer a learning opportunity. So, listen, enjoy, subscribe, and leave us feedback. You may proceed. It pleases the court. My name is Charles Hayden, and I represent Jermika Taylor, the appellant. In this case, the Commonwealth's evidence was insufficient as a matter of law to prove that Jermika Taylor engaged in attempted identity theft, since Taylor never misidentified herself as Sandra Clements, the writer of the check or uh, misrepresented her identity as being any other person. The bank teller uh, asked her for proof of identification and she received an ID card from Jermica Taylor that indicated she was Jermica Taylor. The check was payable to Jermica Taylor. Ms. Uh, Taylor endorsed the back of the check as Jermica Taylor. Uh, she and the, the, the bank clerk noted the driver's license number, issue date, expiry date on the check. Uh, the, the driver's license was for Jermica Taylor. No who signed, who signed Sandra Clements to the check? She, uh, she, uh, she signed Sandra Clements to the check. She did not misrepresent herself as being Sandra Clements. So she used the name of another person in an attempt to obtain money. Yes, uh, she uh, misused the name of another person, but that's uh, but it certainly doesn't uh, qualify as uh, the what is is uh, commonly understood to be the meaning of identity theft, which means misappropriating uh, the identity of another to pass off oneself as someone else in order to obtain goods and credit. Uh, and, and that simply wasn't what happened here. Uh, she didn't use the identity of another to, to misidentify her own identity to ob- obtain goods or credit. Uh, this, uh, the Commonwealth uses, says, well, the Court of Appeals said that, well, I'm, this person obtained goods or services through the use of identifying information and noted in subsection C of the identity theft statute. It says identifies identifying information includes but is not limited to giving a name or any information that can be used to access a person's financial resources or obtain money, credit, Goods or services. This is uh, and the, the, using this this definition. It is uh, propounded by the Commonwealth and the Court of Appeals. Uh, that's untethered to the notion of the commonly understood meaning of identity theft to misrepresent who one is, uh, uh, to, but just say she used information about another person, used somebody else's name. Uh, didn't say that she was that person, but she simply uses somebody 
Mr. Rain, can I ask you a question? Are you relying upon what you believe is an ambiguity in the statute, or do you think the statute plainly does not apply? I think the statute plainly does not apply. I think there's a, when they talk about in subsection C, identifying information, they give a long list of 13 different things that are implicitly covers means of misidentifying oneself to obtain goods or services. All those 13 ways or lists are ways of misidentifying oneself to obtain goods or services. All involve using means of identification. All these examples here are ways of using a means of identification to misrepresent one's own identity as being that of someone else. And so that's what is implicit in this definition, but the Commonwealth and the Court of Appeals simply ignores the implicit meaning of these list of items here that, well, it all has to be is information about another, give a false name. If I say, hey, by the way, I want you to invest in a project. I know Warren Buffett. He's a good buddy of mine. He told me it's the best investment he's ever seen. I'll tell you some other information. I went to see him at Berkshire Hathaway, and I gave this information about him, and I just attempted, under the definition of the Commonwealth, to do attempted identity theft. I have used the name of another and given information that's used to access a person's financial resources. I'm going to get you to invest in my project because I'm telling you that Warren Buffett says this is a fantastic investment, and I obtain money, loans, goods, and services as a result. Under this wildly expansive definition that the Commonwealth uses, the Court of Appeals, that's untethered to the notion of misidentifying oneself, I've just committed attempted identity theft. If I go into a safe, my law partner, I know he lives upstairs in the office building where my office is. He has a safe, and I go and I get his number. I know that he's written down the combination of his safe, and I use those numbers to access that person's financial resources and steal the contents. Under this expansive definition that has been used by the Commonwealth and the Court of Appeals, I've just done identity theft. I didn't steal. I did identity theft. I used a number, the combination of another person I've used to access a property. But implicit in the notion of identity theft is misrepresenting oneself to get access to goods or services or credit that one would not otherwise get if one used one's real identity. But under this definition, every single time somebody presents a check to a forged check, yes, it's forgery, yes, it's uttering, yes, it's using false pretenses, but no, I submit it's not. Let me go back to the question you answered earlier, then, straighten if I can. You said you rely upon the plain language, but when you're talking about the meaning of the statute, you're talking about you're using the word implicit. And implicit means it's not in the plain language, doesn't it? 
So how do I reconcile that? Well, uh, it, it, it is true that they do explicitly say to misrepresent oneself. Right. But it's implicit in the forms, all the types of things. There are certain ways one would use uh, identifying information of another to misrepresent one's own identity. That's implicit. I don't know what you're saying, but how do I ignore the plain language and bring into the, to, the, to my opinion, I guess, the, the, the information well, of implicit? I, I would just cite the Court of Appeals uh, opinion itself. It says, when interpreting a statute, this court must give effect to the legislature's intention. Now, what was the legislature trying to do? It was trying to outlaw identity theft. What's commonly thought of as identity theft. That's what it's seeking to do. And when uh, interpreting a statute, this court must give effect to the legislature's intention as expressed by the language used, unless a literal interpretation of the statute would result in a manifest absurdity, which is precisely what happens here when you fail to ignore the implicit understanding that they're, it's supposed to be misrepresenting oneself, and uh, then you've just encompassed, when does somebody not, uh, who commits fraud not use information uh, incorrectly to uh, usually uh, to obtain goods or services of another? Every single situation of fraud you can imagine involves using, misusing information. May I interrupt uh, you for a second? Uh, but in C, there is some textual uh, backdrop, and it mentions things like uh, bank account numbers, credit or debit cards, personal identification numbers, electronic identification codes, automated electronic signatures, information in t uh, that gains access to financial resources. It's obviously talking about about accessing confidential and sec uh, apparently secure financial uh, resources, like a bank account. In fact, a bank account is one of the numbers you can't use. So isn't that the, the, the boundary that you're, you're hunting for to keep the slippery slope argument from going too far? I, I, I just have to uh, go, go back to what was the legislature trying to do? What was the General Assembly trying to do when they enacted identity theft statutes? Were they trying to define all passing of a forged check, uttering the, uh, as being identity theft? Is that what they were really trying to do when they wrote this statute? Uh, I, I respectfully don't think so. Uh, that was far, the, but this all-encompassing de definition of, of uh, identity theft that's untethered to any notion of misidentifying oneself leads this expansive definition that covers things far afield, far removed from anything the legislature ever intended to cover with this statute. It covers every time a, a, a forged check is, is uttered, because there's going to be somebody's name on the check, and there's uh, going to be somebody's bank account number on the check, and it's going to be uh, any time a forgery has occurred. It involves the use of information that... <laughs> to obtain goods or services, and that's not surely what the legislature intended. Do you have any legislative history or anything, like a crime commission report, or, I mean, anything? Well, like I, that? I don't, uh, there's a lot of the way we figure out what the legislature intended is, we read the statute, well, and that's what they intended. Common sense understanding of what is meant by identity theft. What were they trying to criminalize? Uh, the misuse of, of, uh, of uh, the identity of the misrepresent or use means of identification 
and, the, and all, all, all uh, any uh, definition of means of, uh, of identity theft involves either use of misrepresenting one's own identity as being someone else or uh, using the means of identification like somebody's password or somebody's social security number or something to get access to uh, but, uh, but basically misrepresenting who one is to get access one would not get uh, access to credit one would not get if one had truly ad correctly identified oneself. Uh, it's a, uh, I think it's a, the common sense interpretation of the statute and, and, uh, and leads to a manifestly absurd result that criminalizes all kinds of behavior having nothing to do with what is commonly understood to be uh, identity theft if we expect Accept this expansive definition of the combo. I'll reserve the balance of my time. Thank you. Would you hire an appellate lawyer to handle your jury trial? Of course not. Trying cases requires a different focus, a different way of speaking, even a different way of thinking from handling appeals. So why would you ask a trial lawyer to handle your appeal? When it comes time to appear in an appellate court, trust a lawyer who specializes in appeals only. Steve Emmert limits his practice to appeals. Other lawyers consult him when they face tough problems in the appellate maze. Focus on what you do best. Call Steve Emmert at 757-965-5021 direct to find out how he can help you. Again, that's Steve Emmert at... 757-965-5021. May it please the court, Brittany Dunperio on behalf of the Commonwealth. The facts in this case are quite simple. The defendant stole the victim's check from her house, forged the victim's signature on the check, and then attempted to obtain money by cashing the check at a bank. The Court of Appeals correctly held that this behavior was sufficient to convict Taylor of attempted identity theft under Code Section 18.2-186.3 because Taylor used personal identifying information of the victim without authorization to try to obtain money. The plain language interpretation or reading of the statute supports this holding. The General Assembly is presumed to understand the words that it chooses to include in legislation, and it's also presumed to choose those words with care. And in this case, it enacted a large statute to protect residents of Virginia against their personal information from being exploited by someone else. The term use is defined by um, its plain and ordinary meaning as a method or manner of employing or applying something. And that's exactly what Taylor did in this case. She violated the statute or attempted to violate the statute when she used the victim's personal information that was contained on the check, the signature, the name of the victim, and the bank account information in an attempt to obtain money without authorization. Essentially, the appellant is asking this court to find that there's an additional element in the statute, and that would be an element 
that requires that the defendant must identify or misrepresent herself as the account holder. And because the General Assembly did not include that in the statute, it's clear that it did not intend to limit the type of behaviors that would constitute use under the statute. Do you agree that that could lead to some somewhat counterintuitive application, not in every case certainly, but in some instances to some counterintuitive applications of the statute? No, I don't think that it would lead to counterintuitive applications of the statute. For instance, he gave the Warren Buffett example where someone's saying, oh, well, Warren Buffett endorses this project, so invest with me, when in fact Warren Buffett had nothing to do with the project. And so because they're using the name of Warren Buffett and you've obtained some money from somebody or goods or services in the words of the statute, then that would lead to a charge of identity theft. Well, in this case, it's using personal information that the defendant had obtained without authorization to obtain financially from it. Why isn't that just simple fraud? Well, I think... That's what it is, it's fraud. I tell somebody, my good friend Warren Buffett said this is the best thing, you'll be rich if you invest in this. It's not true. It's not identity theft under the statute, it's fraud. Yes, I think that's correct, it is fraud. And so today, Appellant was discussing that the common understanding of identity theft does not include this specific type of crime that Taylor did. But just because there's a common conception or misconception of what identity theft is in the public does not mean that matches up with what the statute actually criminalizes in this case. Maybe the limiting principle that we're hunting for is found in C, the long list of things which actually are the definitional examples of identifying information. They seem to be very closely linked to financial sources or credit card accounts and numbers and various purely commercial repositories as opposed to just lying to somebody and defrauding them. But there does have to be a limiting principle somewhere, right? Yes. So use to get money covers just about everything. So how do we write an opinion that may or may not agree with you but is consistent with the idea that the text rules but there may be some stress points where the text can't bear the anomaly? And the question I'm putting to you directly is would Section C be the section we look to or do you have a better theory? I think since we're considering the plain language of the statute that we would need to look to Section C to be that limiting factor as what identifying information is. And we have here not only a check with her name on it, the victim's name, but a check with the victim's identifying information. Is the account number on here? Yes, the account number is on here. So we also have the account number. And we're obviously dealing with a bank account. So it fits very comfortably actually within the limiting principle. Yes, Your Honor, it does. I guess that would depend on how many of these factors we have to use in order for it to become identity theft. If we have to use the name, the bank number, 
the Social Security number and one or two other things, then that limiting principle works. But if name alone would suffice, then we fall back into the fraud with Warren Buffett, which if only one of these things is necessary could satisfy the definition of the statute, couldn't it? I believe under a plain reading of the statute that using, identifying information and it lists a number of them would constitute a violation of it. It includes but it's not limited to. So could one, I guess, and we're all struggling with how far does this reach and what is the limiting principle. If only one of these enumerated items satisfies and that is name, then what precludes the fraud count also being prosecuted under this section, the Warren Buffett fraud? Well, there are statutes that cover the same type of criminal behavior. And in this specific case, Taylor was convicted of attempted uttering, attempted false pretenses, attempted identity theft, and also forgery. So, I mean, that could be up to the prosecutor and prosecutorial discretion to decide what charges to bring forward. But in this specific case, her actions did, were sufficient to support a conviction. Let me ask you a question about that. In the more than 45 years I've been practicing law, these kind of bad check cases have been prosecuted as forgery, uttering, false pretenses. Does the fact that this is a somewhat novel, perhaps, use of this particular charge, identity theft, does that support Mr. Hayden's argument that that was not the intention of the legislature? No, I don't believe that it does support the appellant's contention. I think that it was up to the prosecutors to decide what charges they want to bring forward. And in this case, whether we agree with it or not, that's what they chose to do. And the issue isn't whether it should have been brought. It's once it's been brought, was the evidence sufficient to convict? And in this case, it was. So, in theory, the legislature, to limit prosecutorial discretion, could add a code at the end of the statute, as it has in some statutes, unless otherwise prosecuted under another section of this code or something like that. Yes, it could. And it could also limit what the term use is as well, but it didn't do that in this case for the statute. Right, because it could have said, essentially, something to the effect of while impersonating another or something. So it's one thing if I say, well, I am Warren Buffett or whatever, versus the broader use. But they didn't do that, and that's the trouble. If there are no further questions, I ask that this court affirm the opinion in the Court of Appeals of Virginia and the judgment in the circuit court. All right, Mr. Hayden, two minutes and 47 seconds. Your Honor, I think the way that the intent of the legislature manifests itself is in the subsection C, it's listing means of identification, a way of identifying oneself as someone else by using a person's password or someone's social security number or 
or his date of birth or his driver's license number. And, and it's implicit in their listing of these that it's, these are uh, methods of identification. Your Warren Buffett illustration, while interesting and novel, isn't, isn't involved with the, what this statute's about. This is statute's about the mechanics of, of uh, completing a misrepresentation of the identity of one of the parties to the transaction. And the Warren Buffett illustration is it's not even close to that. What that is, is, I, you know, I've got ten neighbors and they all agree. It's a lie. All right? I, Warren Buffett said something about it on CNN. It's a lie. It's not, it's not, it's not a impersonating somebody else. It's not stealing somebody else's identity. That's, it seems to me, is the major limiting factor that would apply. Why not? Your Honor, uh, in this case, she never misrepresented herself. If she had, then that would certainly be identity. When, when she, she had, it, it, would you agree that name, that a signature is a name? Uh, yes. So when she signs the check owner's signature to the check and passes the check, why isn't she misidentifying herself? by signing the check owner's name as the check owner. Yes. Uh, well, I think that, that there was some issue of whether she, in fact, was, uh, was the person that actually wrote the check. I think the thing that alerted the bank teller was her multiple handwritings on the check uh, that, that, that I thought earlier, made her suspicious at first place. But she was found guilty of forgery, so in some way or another she had right. knowledge of, of the... That was not um, the uh, the signature of the actual owner of the bank account. So that's certainly true. But uh, I would just note that if we if we do have a literal interpretation of the language, it does result in a manifest absurdity, and that's a situation. Uh, in that situation, we we ought to employ the what's clearly was try to bring into effect what the legislature clearly wanted to outlaw was identity theft, misrepresenting who one was or using means of identification of another to misidentify oneself. I also would move on to recess until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Thank you for tuning in to the Supreme Court of Virginia podcast. My name is Ben Glass, and Steve Emmert and I provide these oral argument audios for free as a public service. If you're a fan of the podcast, I'd love to send you my book, Renegade Lawyer Marketing, absolutely free. Just visit www.benglassreferrals.com and I'll be glad to ship it to you. This book has helped thousands of lawyers across the country improve their lives and their practices. Again, that's benglassreferrals.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy these oral arguments from the Supreme Court of Virginia.